Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey, guys, this is The Bitch with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, fortunately, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And uh, we're going to talk today about immigration, but not just like kind of a general discussion. Um, wanted to look at one specific case of it. And this is something Mises brought up, Ludwig von Mises brought up 100 years ago. And as far as I've seen, no one has really addressed it. And I don't claim to have the theoretical answer. Um, but it's something that needs to be acknowledged and addressed, I think, by people who talk about open borders and how free markets, any sort of uh, sympathy for laissez-faire free markets requires... Uh, an adoption of open borders. Now, this the idea kind of came about because I started to notice that a lot of the discussion around immigration, open borders, among the people who claim to be experts on it, at least the ones who talk about it in English and in the United States, um, they are always talking about the wealthy West and the United States, maybe Canada also. And what they're, what they're usually saying is, hey, look, the United States could have an open border. The United States is huge. It doesn't have to really worry about issues like assimilation. Obviously, national defense isn't going to be a big issue if just 5 million new migrants show up. Uh, also, there's all these natural impediments to migration, such as the United States is far away from the rest of the world. And uh, it takes it's an arduous journey to get to the United States etc., etc. So even granting, so I don't want to address those issues, how it applies to the United States. 
even granting that that's true, which for the sake of argument, um, some other day we can we can uh, address some of those arg arg uh, arguments as specific to the United States, but they obviously don't apply globally. When we start thinking beyond fairly large, wealthy, first world countries that can easily afford military defense, that already have large populations of, say, over at least 50 million. So this would include, of course, Japan, the United States, maybe not Canada yet, but Canada soon, the UK, France. Come, once we start getting to small countries, this idea that open border brings no serious existential problems is obvious nonsense. And we can look at that at issues like, are you Botswana next to Zimbabwe? Are you Latvia next to Russia? What, what would happen if those countries had open borders next to much larger countries? And it, <laughs> it would immediately bring about basically the destruction of the existing political institutions in those countries. Now, one could argue that maybe that's a good thing, uh, but you would have to argue that. You can't just say, hey, you know, it wouldn't be a big problem. It wouldn't be a big change uh, because open borders, the, the consequences aren't nearly as big as you think they are. Uh, one could argue that, that that applies to a United States situation, but it clearly doesn't apply to many other situations. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit here is the fact that open borders cannot be a general global case unless we come up with some other very different theoretical arguments that aren't what most of these uh, open border advocates are claiming right now. Um, now, though, I mean, the sorts of people I'm talking about, I think probably the leading person on this is maybe Brian Kaplan, who's got his book, The Case for Open Borders, which I say in today's article might as well really be called The Case for Open Borders in Wealthy Countries. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I just haven't seen a discussion of this topic as how it applies globally. Um, have you seen anyone else talk about this? Because everything I see is really just the, the argument boils down to, hey, rich countries, you should bring in more migrants from poor countries because it will benefit you in terms of per capita GDP, productivity, that sort of thing. That's what seems to me to be what the focus of the entire debate is over. Right. I think it's a tendency to kind of view, um, you know, the, the quest for universal truths from a libertarian framework leads to a lot of these overly broad, um, ignoring some of the detail sort of questions with the immigration problem. Um, particularly, I mean, given the existence of an interventionist state, and this is what you know, Mises identifies in, in liberalism, right? It, it, he, he notes that there are no clear solutions uh, to the problem of immigration, so long as you have, you know, an interventionist state or socialist state or you know any variety of of government that we you know have in in you know, the world today, um, and I, I think one of the things that makes the uh, immigration question so contentious, um, often again, it, it is almost always from at least from the discussions we have in the English-speaking libertarian world, right? They, they are with the, the U.S. a specific example in mind. Um, you, know, you see, I think, big differences when you talk to Europeans, which obviously the discussion about large countries, rich countries um, would, would apply um, to, to them as well. 
but kind of the challenges that Europeans have faced as a result of, again, particularly you know, EU-driven immigration policies are different than the historical norms of immigration from the American perspective, from, from a variety of angles there. Um, and then, of course, you know, this, this topic has only you know, risen with the acceleration of, um, you know, trying to, I don't want to use a term that's going to offend someone, but with, with the, the mainstream political concerns out there about, um, you know, lack of border security, um, you know, large, you know, migrant caravans alike, right? I think a lot of the conversation tends to be kind of reacting to libertarian debates from these very specific examples. Um, and they are the, your, your desired solution for these are kind of end up being wrapped into, well, this is obviously the libertarian position. Um, and it takes this very universalistic lens. And of course, I, I think this question about small countries, um, in particular is important because I think the goals that, you know, you know one of the things that we strive for. Um, at least from a, a particular brand of libertarianism, is a desire to have breakaway political units, to have smaller states, um, to have smaller political orders and the like as a step towards you know, the radical decentralized goal. And so kind of yada yadaing over some of these very real practical considerations, um, you know, I think often everything kind of ends up being driven purely from economic concerns. I think Kaplan, for example, um, who's obviously a you know, brilliant scholar, you know, someone who, who you know, is, is always worth reading. Um, but I think a lot of the arguments there tend to be predicated upon um, economic arguments or a, a, or a, a libertarian sense of, of justice. Um, you know, no, no you know, borders or imaginary lines on the, on, on the, the map, you know, who, who can dare tell me I can't go here, here and here. Um, and it ignores a lot of the very real practical considerations that um, are you know, part of the dynamic when you see when you, when you have a situation where you have a, a very large migration pattern um, in areas that you know, are uh, do not have just the, the assumption of sort of finite growth and all this extra land, all these all these aspects that um, you know you could argue applies to the American example. Well, and I guess to start off, let's just talk about what we mean by open borders. Um, you almost never meet real people in real life who <laughs> want a totally open border. Um, and uh, this is certainly true of people who are recent immigrants or their parents were immigrants, that sort of thing. Um, very few Mexican-Americans out there think that the United States would be improved by making the United States pretty much like Mexico. Uh, I guarantee you that my grandmother who moved here from Mexico when she was a little girl, never in her life said, you know what would make this country better? If the people who ran Mexico came here and ran California, which is where she lived. I mean, obviously, <laughs> if she thought that, she could have moved back to Mexico. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the issue too is, yes, she didn't care for the anti-Mexican bigotry that existed in the United States in the 30s, 40s, uh, when she was there. But again, 
turning the U.S. into Mexico, which of course has plenty of bigotry of its own kind, wouldn't improve the place. Um, and so to have a totally open border would imply um, a swift movement from uh, one type of polity into another, as we will demonstrate with our larger discussion here. Um, so let's just keep in mind when we're talking about open borders, what, what are we talking about? Does it mean a totally open border with no limits whatsoever? Well, even Kaplan says, okay, well, sure, you could uh, try and screen for felons uh, or maybe terrorists. Of course, then the border's not, not really totally open, is it? You've got background checks then going on in that case. I've seen other libertarians say, um, well, you could, it makes sense to close the border if there's a pandemic. Um, and I quote that in, in my article today. Uh, this is an article arguing along the lines of uh, the, right, the, free, the right to freely move and relocate is uh, basically absolute, but you can limit people if they have a disease. Uh, so th almost never do you see any true laissez-faire claim on the border. Almost everyone agrees, yeah, you could do some background checks or something like that. I, what the real argument is over, should you limit people, the, the total number of people? And generally, I would say open border uh, arguments are that no, no limitations whatsoever except on, in extreme cases where the person has a bomb strapped to his chest uh, or he's got Ebola something like that. And so basically what it means then is that you could literally have uh, 500,000 people a day line up on a border and say, we want to come in. And so long as they can find physical space to sit down somewhere, uh, which as this country's shown, isn't even really, doesn't even rely on that. They'll put you up in a hotel, They'll give you a tent so you can live on the street. There's not even, it's not even contingent on can you get a job or is someone willing to uh, let you live in their home, which would, by the way, bringing in that sort of private sector nexus would actually address the issue considerably and actually put management of total migration into the hands of the private sector much more effectively. But in effect, what we've seen throughout most of the world is that Migration, large-scale migrations across borders, it just means people, they get across the border and they end up maybe in a refugee camp uh, or on the street or in some sort of makeshift temporary housing. And that's the reality. It's not actually limit, limited to what's available, who will give you a job, who will um, let you stay in their home. And so what it, what it means functionally is Anybody who's been deemed not a terrorist or not disease-ridden gets in, and that could number in hundreds of thousands or even millions over fairly short periods of time. So that is what we are talking about here. Uh, and there are real repercussions of that in the larger world. And I know it. I think one of the big indicators of that is, okay, it's one thing to be the United States where you're the largest country on the continent, and all the countries next to you are smaller especially the lower income countries. Uh, so the entire population of Mexico and Central America does not equal that of the United States. It's considerably smaller. Uh, however, what if you're Latvia? Now you're a country with under 2 million people and you're next to a country with 144 million people. So what does that mean for you if you were to truly open the border and say, okay, everyone who wants to live here can, either for a job or you just want to rent an apartment or whatever, come on in, look around. Now suddenly what you've got are 
residents numbering in uh, overnight, you could have your Russian ethnic population of Latvia double or triple or quadruple. And then over a period of years, you could then outnumber the ethnic Latvians. I mean, this, this doesn't take 20 years. It could happen in five years. Because remember, only about 2% of the Russian, well, heck, less than 2%, about 1.1% of the Russian population would need to move to Latvia to outnumber the Latvians. So is that a plausible policy for a tiny country like Latvia? It doesn't, it seems to me that if you're going to insist that any respect for laissez-faire requires that a country of 2 million people open its border to a country of 144 million people, it's basically you're asking that country to commit suicide. Uh, you're also asking for the residents of that country to give up all of their political rights in the long term, because history shows that once you're a heavily outnumbered minority, then your political rights are under siege. And just relying on some sort of vague notion of liberalism to triumph uh, among new migrants into a tiny country like that doesn't seem like a very wise policy. Right, and, and Mises makes this example of liberalism. I mean, you, you, when we think about small countries, we would not necessarily think of Australia when it comes to, obviously, uh, uh, geography, right? It's a very large, very large island. There's a lot of space there. Um, you know, but he talks about how if Australia embraced a full open borders policy, then it'd be reasonable to expect that, you know, over a, a period of time that the makeup of that nation um, would end up consisting mostly of, in, in his words, you know, Japanese, Chinese, and Malayans. And that would have a significant shift in the traditions of that country, particularly when you have an interventionist state. Um, with its impact on you know, the education process, uh, you know, government language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, these are you know, very, real very real justified fears that would scare you know, the, the, the previous generations of residents there. And Hayek makes a very similar point. Um, there was a, uh, an op-ed he wrote um, during the Thatcher regime where he talked about how, you know, in an ideal, he would you know, support a, a open borders um, policy for, for England, um, but that his fear would be that should you actually have that come in place, that that would end up sparking um, nationalistic tensions that would have very dire consequences for the, you know, political and, and cultural issues that the, the nation faces. So these are, I think, very, very real issues. And of course, you know, what you would get in response is like, oh, well, the solution then is to to have no state. The solution is to, you know, kind of you know, assume away a lot of the um, uh, uh, issues that come from the the interventionist side of things. But it does not take away from, um, you know, the appreciation and the kind of the, the these these sort of cultural battles of you know nation of of. You know that you've you've been a part of for for multiple generations. It has its its unique history, has its unique traditions, has unique culture, has its unique language, and the like. Um, the idea that oh, well, just replacing that with any other group, there is no kind of loss there. That oh, well, you know, if, if you have more people buying houses there, then it's going to increase the the your property values. And look, this is just the free market in action. Um, you know, I, I think that these are are very real problems that um, should not just simply be kind of overlooked um, because of a sort of belief in, in a uh, kind of universal freedom of movement um, dynamic 
that I, I think kind of ignores, you know, it, it actively just tries to, to ignore a lot of these you know, underlying problems. Well, and that's why you have to spend some time looking at countries outside the United States, because a lot of the time what the open border advocates rely on is accusing you of being a bigot if you oppose open borders. Oh, look, these uh, British ethnic nationalists, they just don't like brown people. Okay, well, let's look at other countries then, um, where it's not a rich white country wanting to keep out poor brown people out of their country. That's why I use the Baltics example. Right. So what are, <laughs> are the open borders people, most of whom I assume are on the hate Russia bandwagon? Are they now going to uh, accuse people who think that Latvia shouldn't have an open border? Uh, do, do we say that just because we're anti-Russian bigots? Uh, by the way, you will notice that the Baltic states have nothing even remotely resembling open border policies. Uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, these are very, they have very limited uh, numbers of migrants who are allowed to come in. They do not offer um, uh, naturalization easily. You have to uh, show uh, that you can speak the language. In fact, there was a recent headline about uh, many thousands of Russians slated for uh, deportation because they hadn't bothered to learn the local language. Um, is, is this just because they're all hate mongers and racists who don't like Russians enough? Um, I would be interested to see why we're supposed to believe that, that Latvians uh, are, are so unaccepting of Russian migrants. Uh, it, can't just, it can't be because they just hate brown people. Um, so I'm curious about there. How about, let's use another example, uh, Botswana. Now, Botswana is one of the most successful countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a former English colony, well, former British colony. It uh, has one of the, certainly among the highest GDP per capita in the region, but it also has the, you could say, misfortune of being next to Zimbabwe, which uh, has one of the lowest GDP per capita, is politically unstable. Also, Zimbabwe has over 16 million people, whereas Botswana has uh, under 3 million. So there's a border between Botswana and Zimbabwe. You could see, obviously, many Zimbabweans would want to access the capital and the relative state of law and order, uh, the peace and the wealth of Botswana in large numbers. So the question is, should Botswanans open their border to Zimbabwe? Uh, yeah, a, lo a lot of, <laughs> and there, there are ethnic differences here. I know a lot of people uh, Americans and Westerners look and they, oh, look, they're all black guys. So it must be all the exactly the same ethnicity and culture. Well, no, that's not how Africa works. Many different ethnicities, uh, often with very different cultures, as our own uh, friend Lipton Matthews could tell you in some of his uh, columns about African history. And so the question is, okay, should Botswana, a country of 3 million people, allow in 3 million Zimbabweans, which is only you know, a minority of Zimbabweans? Uh, so this would then give a, you know, about a Zimbabwean majority in Botswana. Would Botswana continue to be Botswana? And what, so now that the Zimbabweans have brought all their wonderful political institutions with them that they supported in Zimbabwe, does this benefit uh, Botswanans? Well, the Kaplan argument is that, of course it does. It increases their per capita GDP. Now they have uh, more access to productive workers. This will create a flowering of the economy. And in the, uh, he likes to quote an older um, uh, 
analogy or metaphor where it's, look, it's just like picking up dollars on the sidewalk. It's just discovered money. It's easy money. Well, I wonder if you asked a Botswana, sir, you could increase your per capita GDP by 5%. All you have to do is let Zimbabweans have a majority in the legislature. What would he say? Uh, probably no thanks. Um, now, of course, many libertarians would argue, well, just because the majority of Botswanans don't like Zimbabweans doesn't really justify the policy. Okay, but uh, you, you have to admit then you're asking for an insane policy that virtually everyone in that country would disagree with. Um, and so this is the sort of thing that makes people mock libertarians too. This idea that, well, if, if libertarianism ends up being a suicide pact because we're going to repopulate our, a majority of our country with Zimbabweans rather than Botswanans, then so be it. Well, that, that, that causes a lot of people then to question the theory behind your policy. And so I'm not claiming I have the theoretical answer to this, but you can see the problem. And also that it's not just because, hey, we're rich white people and we, we hate the idea of these horrible brown foreigners coming to our country. The idea is just a wee bit more complex than that. And it's a global issue that hardly just applies to uh, the, the American border down south when, when looking at Latin Americans. Right. I mean, it, it's you get the kind of trap where it's it's almost adopting sort of the the homo economicus model when it comes to the the immigration question. You kind of you view individuals as sort of these interchangeable widgets. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the you, they're all kind of rational actors that are just going to be um, you know all, all their movements are going to be you know, profit maximizing and all this sort of stuff. And of course, that's just doesn't not the reality of, of the way it plays out. And of course, we've seen. Uh, the weaponization of population changes is something that is not a, a theoretical game. It's something that we saw to pl take place in the Soviet Union, um, you know, with a, a very directed, you know, large-scale immigration or migration moves to break up a lot of the challenges to Soviet authority when it comes to issues of history and culture and language and tradition and the like. And this is exactly what Murray Rothbard um, uh, touched on. Uh, in his article on uh, Nations by Consent, um, where he talked about his evolution on this problem and the role that you know, witnessing what the, the Soviet Union was playing, um, you know, the way that, that played into it, um, you know, some of the um, uh, political challenges that America had on sort of welfare, um, cultural issues, um, kind of raising some of these concerns as well. And so this is not something that is a, is a, is a theoretical game. We've, we've seen how you know even if a, a nation has the best of intentions and is guided by you know sort of a, a, a liberal outlet um the willingness for other nations to recognize a weakness there and to utilize migration patterns as a way to, to get their desired ends is very real and with what is interesting is that when you look at outside examples um again you know you, you see uh, there's there's a number of of libertarian american um, scholars out there that will make very passionate defenses of uh, open borders for the united states and again i'm i'm willing to entertain um a, a larger conversation that america is a very unique example in the in the global scale of things and and our ability to to take in immigrate immigrants and you know kind of the, the uniqueness of our history i'm 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 open to those to to that sort of a uh, viewpoint there um, but if you're grounding it in sort of these libertarian universal uh, truths, 
And then, you know, you see that, you know, what they would view for a, a nation like Israel, for example, which obviously has a very big cultural difference with all their neighbors around there, right? If you had an open borders policy for Israel, um, it is you know, very easy to imagine a sh very short period of time, um, even if it was purely peaceful by nature, that the nature of the Israeli state um, would change fundamentally in a very short period of time. Now, some people might uh, uh, you might, might desire that ends again. I think that there are th th those nations probably would love to see a, a fundamental change of uh, Israel and its placement in that part of the world. Um, but you know these are are you know, very real issues. And I know there there have been attempts to try to analyze and measure um, the impact that large immigration waves can have on. Um, you know, political institutions in the country. Um, I believe Ben Powell and um, Alex Nazareth with uh, Cato um, have attempted to do studies um, using um, uh, uh, these uh, synthetic measurements on trying to kind of create a pool of different real world nations, kind of cobble them together in a way that would create a model to try to measure hypothetical outcomes there. Um, and of course, you know, I, I think there's, there's some valid critiques of that methodology there um, that uh, I, 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 think are, I think are obvious. I think this is one of the, the, the difficulties of doing that sort of, of empirical work. Um, but we, we don't need to rely upon, I think, these sort of empirical examples. You can look at, you know, when, um, you know, the, the extent of, of organized crime, for example, um, when you had uh, uh, mass immigration of Soviet Union Jews, for example, moving to Israel. Um, you can find, you know, historical and empirical dynamics there where there are, there are issues that, that did raise itself. Um, as a part of that migration pattern, which obviously that is a specific situation where you have, you know, you, you have a common religion, you have, you know, some some very interesting connections there between the native population and the the immigrating population. Um, you, you can also even see it kind of play out right now um, with some of the culture war battles playing out in a state like Minnesota, where you have, um, uh, uh, you know, large Muslim communities that have very different views. On let's say you know, transgenderism or um, you know flying the gay pride flag and the like, and you have this very interesting dynamic where liberals in these areas that were very um, enthusiastic in receiving um, you know, Muslim immigrants and things like that, right? You know, this was part of you know they 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 were big advocates for this. This was not a migration that was kind of imposed upon them the same way that you know when if you had a you know, I know there was a lot of tension when the Obama administration was moving, you know, Syrian refugees into small towns in like Louisiana on the right, right? That's that's one sort of cultural clash right from the get-go. Um, but then you see over time is that oh well, you know, these these uh, you know white liberals in Minnesota are now outraged that these city councils in towns in Minnesota, the cities in Minnesota, um, end up actually not sharing the same cultural views that they would otherwise have. If you did not have this massive shift in population, and so again, you know, this just the the appreciation that there are very real um, cultural and secondary sort of considerations there beyond the question of oh, is it bigoted to, you know, not have uh, not allow anyone just to come here? You know, there there are very real ramifications in terms of what it does to um, various institutions within a community. 
Yeah, and it matters if you are a country that has elections and democratic institutions, or if you're not. You could look at the issue of traditional colonialism. And in those cases, the majority doesn't matter nearly as much. So the, the French government goes into Algeria, says, hey, Algeria, you're part of France now. Uh, technically, France didn't even consider Algeria to be a colony. Algeria was simply part of metropolitan France, complete with its own province or its own uh, departments um, and members of the legislature and all of that. It was just simply part of France. Um, so what that meant is that migration between Algeria and France proper was essentially open uh, to a large, large number of people. And however, there was also some management about how, okay, well, who could vote among the indigenous Algerian population? There had to be management there so that the, the French population, the ethnic French population, wasn't run out of the country. And this is even more authoritarian in, say, Kenya or the early stages of Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia, especially where the British state comes in, they they open the border by force to a small minority of British people, you know, ethnic Brits. They come in and they never attain the majority, but the power of the state is used to ensure that the power of the minority is sufficient. And so in those cases, then who is in the majority doesn't really matter that much. Um, it's, it does matter ultimately in the long run because it's really hard to maintain rule by a minority uh, over the long haul, as we've seen again and again and again in terms of revolutions and uprisings and all of that. However, for the short term, you can maintain minority rule for a while. And uh, it, uh, it's, it's less important. However, when you are in a situation where People are going to move in. They're going to expect, at least after a certain number of years, a vote. That's going to change the political institutions. Um, there might be a lag on it. We know how the, it works, right? Even if you have a policy of, okay, well, you can't become, well, let a million of you uh, people in country B come into this country A, which has a population of 2 million. All right, now you're this huge minority population within country A. Well, how long is that minority population, which is now a huge part of that country, going to sit back and say, yeah, we don't need the vote. We don't need any sort of political representation. Uh, we don't need to be a part of the political institutions. At first, they might accept that. But over time, they're going to start demanding political rights. Uh, this just occurs everywhere. And so you may say, oh, well, we were, weren't planning on giving you uh, voting rights for 20 years. They say, well, cut it to five. And now give us the vote, or we'll revolt. We'll, we'll, uh, or we'll just engage in a bunch of peaceful actions that will require you to heed uh, our demands. We'll block highways. We'll do work strikes. Uh, any number of things. These are all real examples of what happens. And so then they start to gain more and more political advantage, and eventually they get full suffrage, and it completely revolutionizes uh, the local institutions and population. Um, now, again, you can argue whether that's good or bad, depending on the situation. But the fact is that it does happen and that it brings about major changes simply by allowing the physical presence of a large ethnic minority that is not part of the majority and has, especially as is often the case in Europe and Asia, a history of conflict with the majority population and vice versa. So these are all problems that if you just hand wave them away and pretend like it doesn't matter, you start to sound ridiculous after a while. 
uh, or it becomes blatantly obvious that your arguments only apply to a small number of countries in the United States where those same sorts of, of ethnic problems don't exist. And so you can't really just um, <laughs> attempt to apply this universally and hope that everything just works out because people, A, won't take you seriously, and B, it does make the theory behind it all look pretty weak. Um, so if we are going to be talking about immigration, we need to really take more of a global view if we're going to claim that we have any sort of general principles, global principles that are at work here. Now, this doesn't call into question any of the economic policy. Mises, where he writes about this problem in liberalism, he doesn't abandon the economics of open borders and the necessity of free migration. He recognizes that when you're talking economics, that's all true, that the free movement of workers, uh, open borders are good in theory because he can see that there should not be state restrictions on access of capital to labor and vice versa. The problem is that there are real world political issues that have to be addressed here. And that's when he says that, look at Australia and look how it would be flooded with migrants and this would revolutionize political institutions. At that point, he's, he's making political arguments, not economic ones. So there aren't good economic arguments against free migration. Um, and Rothbard would say the same thing. When he talks as an economist about migration, he didn't oppose free migration at all. But then when he started to look at it in terms of political institutions and political unrest and the realities there, that's another matter altogether. So it's not enough to just talk about this in terms of rich countries expect, uh, accepting migrants from poor countries. You have to look at, if you're going to try and come up with some sort of general theory, you have to look at the larger world and see what you can come up with there. And it seems to me we have a lot of work that has to be done there, and uh, the theory just hasn't come far enough. So that's going to be about it for this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you, Tho, for joining me today, and thank you all who have been listening. And we'll be back next week. We'll see you next time.